But one summer night, almost 30 years ago, I came face to face with my own helplessness. Our son James, who was only a baby at the time, was having what we later learned was a febrile seizure, but a very serious one. He'd stopped breathing, he was lying on the floor, the color had left his face. We called 911, and I, I knelt on the floor beside him and waited for the ambulance to arrive and prayed, and I, I never felt so helpless in my life. Fortunately, we, we lived just over a mile from the nearest fire station, so the ambulance arrived at our door in just a few minutes. But those few minutes seemed like an eternity as I waited totally and completely powerless to help my son. It's a horrifying feeling to be helpless like that because we like to be in control of our world. We like to know what's going on. We like to have a plan. We like to know what to do. We like to be comfortable in the situation. What we don't like is being put into what seems like a no-win situation, being given what appears to be an impossible task. And yet, those of us who follow Jesus Christ have been called to do just that, and that is do what seems to be impossible. We've been called to be holy in the midst of a wicked and sinful world. We've been called to reach out and love those who are unlovable. I experienced that about 30 years ago when I was a young pastor. There was a man in the county jail who had asked to speak with a pastor. He didn't speak very much, but I went to see him on a regular basis. He had molested his 14-year-old daughter. And when I met him, I had a two-year-old daughter of my own. Sitting across from this man in that small visitor cell in the county jail, the last thing I felt was love for him. But I had to be there and let God love him through me. I had to tell him that God loved and cared for him. And so did I because of God. I couldn't have done that without the power of God. We have to love the unlovable. We've been called to forgive those who have hurt us. Those who've sinned against us through no fault of our own. I may have done nothing to them, they sinned against me. I need to forgive them as God forgave me. We've been called to make disciples out of sinners. Is that enough to make you feel helpless? When we think about what it is God has called us to do, it's very easy to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, who, me? Who am I to do such things? I'm not smart enough. I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not courageous enough. I'm not important enough. There's no way I can do that. That seems to be a reasonable response. Well, the good news is if you feel that way, you're not alone. We're not the first ones to look at the task that God's called us to and feel helpless and wonder how we could possibly do it. I'd like to share with you briefly three men from the Old Testament who faced that same situation, men who were called by God to do what seemed to be impossible. Since this was a last-minute change to the message, I don't have any slides for the text, so you can take out your pew Bibles if you'd like or your phones if you want to follow along. We're going to start in Exodus chapter 3 with Moses, who we know he had, Moses had killed an Egyptian, then he'd fled Egypt to escape Pharaoh's punishment. He settled down in Midian, where he'd started a family and worked as a shepherd. So 40 years after leaving Egypt, Moses is basically 80 years old. He's out taking care of the sheep, and God appears to him in a burning bush. Exodus chapter 3 beginning with verse 4. The Lord saw that he turned aside to see. God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And on down, God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Come, God said, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Verse 11, we see Moses' response. Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? In other words, uh, God, are you sure you've got the right person? I'm the one who ran away from Egypt. I'm just an 80-year-old shepherd now. I think you could do better. Conversation went on for some time, Moses trying to get out of this task. At one point, Moses reminded God in chapter 4, verse 10, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've, since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And we'll see how God deals with that in just a few minutes. See, Moses saw himself as nothing more than an old shepherd. Who was he to go before the king of Egypt and tell him to let God's people go? Fast forward 250 years. The story of Gideon, Judges chapter 6. The Israelites are living in the promised land, but all was not well. Judges 6 says that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Malachites and people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. They would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. The people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And in Judges chapter 6, 11, it says, The angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wine in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon said, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not this Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the land of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? Now, let's make sure we get the picture here. Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. So normally when you thresh wheat, you throw it up in the air, they have a hard surface on the ground, throw it up in the air, and the wind will blow the chaff away and leave the wheat kernels to fall down. But when they did that, the Midianite raiders would come along and steal the wheat. So he's in a wine press. Well, an old Israelite wine press was basically two pits in the ground lined with plaster and rocks or dug out of the rock, one for the grapes and one for the, the, the juice to flow. So Gideon's basically hiding in a hole in the ground, and the angel of the Lord appears and says, O valiant warrior, the Lord is with you. I'm going to say, I think you got the wrong hole. This is the wrong place. It must be the guy down on the other side of the field or something like that. Gideon says, I'm nobody special. I'm insignificant. I'm as little as you get. Little guy hiding in a hole. Find somebody better. Fast forward 600 more years. After Gideon, God called Jeremiah to his ministry as a prophet. Jeremiah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah responds in verse 6. I, then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. In other words, I'm too young, not ready for this. I can maybe preach to the people down the street, but all the nations, I'm not ready for that yet. Now, we shouldn't be too hard on these men because they were called to do things far beyond what any of us will ever have to face. But they're probably, they probably felt very much like we do when we look at the tasks to which God has called us. We're too young and too old. 
We're too inexperienced. We're not important enough. We're not smart enough. The task is too difficult. And we go on and on. We're afraid. Because in our own selves, in our strength, our own abilities, we're certainly not up to the task. After all, who here feels adequate in him or herself to carry out the Great Commission? To be holy, to love the unlovable. Who here feels important enough to be called upon by God to do his work? The good news is we're not alone. Listen to how God answered each of these three men. Moses, in Exodus 3, God said, but I will be with you. Gideon, in Judges 6, the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. Jeremiah, the Lord said, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. Notice this. God didn't try to convince them that they were qualified or important enough. He didn't try to raise their self-esteem so they'd be more comfortable in their efforts. He simply said, I will be with you. You see, the key to facing the seemingly impossible tasks to which God has called us, the key to dealing with both our real and perceived feelings of helplessness is to fully appreciate what God's presence means to us so that we can trust in him to be with us as we follow him in obedience. If we look in scripture, we find four truths about God's presence that will help us with this. Number one, the promise of God's presence, God is the God who is with us. God is the God who is with us. Throughout scripture, God promises to be with his people. But that answer, I will be with you, means more than may meet the eye. It's not just telling us something God will do. It tells us what kind of God he is. Back to Exodus chapter 3. So we know Moses told God, who am I to do this? And God said, I will be with you. Well, then in verse 13, Moses asks God, well, if they ask me who sent me, what shall I say his name is? God says in verse 14, I am that I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. Now, we're all familiar with that, that God calls himself I am. But to really appreciate this text as God spoke it to Moses and the original readers read it, we need a little brief Hebrew lesson. I'll try not to get too technical. Basically, in Hebrew, the word translated I will be, as in I will be with you, is this exact same word and form as the word I am. For you grammar geeks, Hebrew doesn't have a future tense, biblical Hebrew at least. There's a perfect tense, meaning something's done. And an imperfect tense, meaning I'm still doing it, I'm going to do it in the future. So I am and I will be are both eche. So Moses says, who am I? God says, eche. Eche imka, I will be with you. Eche imka, I will be with you. Moses said, well, what if they ask who, sends, who sent me? God says, eche. Eche, asher, eche, I am. For a Hebrew speaker, this would have jumped right out and he would have gotten the point. You see, we think of I am sometimes only as some philosophical statement about the eternal self-existent nature of God, which is true, by the way. But when God said, I am that I am, he wasn't stepping back from Moses and saying, you little Moses down there, I am this transcendent God, just listen to me. He was also saying, I am the God who is, but I am also the God who will be with you. That's the key there. God wasn't just telling us that he is, but that he will be with us. He's the God that is, he is the God who will be with us. So it's not important who we are. What's important is that he is and that he will be with us. As long as God is who he is and God is with us, we should simply obey his call. Our problem is we look at ourselves from our earthly perspective. Moses was a humble shepherd, getting an unimportant guy hiding in a hole in the ground. Jeremiah was a young man without experience. We wouldn't have chosen any of them for the task, would we? 
We tend to choose people on the same basis that the world does. We choose them based on their physical appearance, on their financial success, on their social position, on their education, and so forth and so on. God looks in the heart. God can use anyone whose heart is dedicated to him. One of my favorite Old Testament verses, 2 Chronicles 16.9. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. That is, God is looking through the earth, not for people who are good-looking and successful and wealthy and educated. He's looking for people whose heart is dedicated to him so that he can show his power on their behalf and work through them and show his power in their lives. That's not to say that experience and training and education aren't important for some tasks. God clearly uses those things, and sometimes he calls us to situations that provide us with experience and training. The lesson is that when God's call becomes clear, we can't use our feelings of inadequacy as an excuse not to obey. So God has promised to be with us, but what does that really mean? I've never heard a voice from a burning bush or have an angel come find me while I'm um, in a wine press in the ground. We need to remember that God's presence with us is neither a metaphysical abstraction of some sort, nor is it just sort of a touchy-feely, oh, I, you know, I hope God's with me, and I sort of, sort of feel good because I think about God. God's presence with us is a very real, meaningful, effective presence. So the second truth is the power of his presence. God will be with us in a way that makes a difference. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. And I love the song Anson had this morning because this, it goes with this text, and he didn't know I was going to preach this, and I didn't know they were going to sing this song. And you'll get it when we read this. 2 Kings 6, beginning with verse 8. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God, that is the prophet Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you don't pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus, Elisha used to warn him, so he saved himself there more than once or twice. The mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. He called his servants and said, basically, which one of you is for the king of Israel? In other words, who's the spy? One of his servants said, none, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. He said, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. They said, he's in Dothan. So the king of Syria sent horses and chariots and a great army. They came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? They were surrounded. Elisha's response, he said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Okay, now if you're the servant, Elisha says, don't worry, those with us are more than those with them. I'm looking up around the hills and saying, let's see, I count about you know, three, four, five hundred chariots, one Elisha, one servant. The odds don't look very good. It would have been really easy to say that. He thinks the old guy's kind of lost it. But verse 17 says, Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. The Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You read on, you see God delivered Elisha. It looked like they were surrounded by the enemy, but God was surrounding them. Now, this was a unique incident in Scripture where the usually invisible presence of God was revealed in a very real way. You see, Elisha didn't have to see the chariots of fire. He knew they were there. 
God made them visible for the benefit of his servant and for all of us who read the story. You see, God's presence is very real. It's very powerful. And when we're following him, it makes a difference. For example, it can protect us when we're in danger. When we're in danger, we saw the story right there. Elisha was protected. It can empower us when we lack strength and ability. Back to Moses in Exodus 4. Moses complained. He's got, God, I'm not a very good speaker. I'm not a good choice to speak before Pharaoh. Well, God had already told Moses, I will be with you. But God had to get very specific. He said, go, Moses. I will be with your mouth. So no excuses, Moses. So I'm not just with you in some fuzzy, general-purpose way. I've called you to speak, so I'm going to be with your mouth. No excuses. I'm empowering you, Moses. In other words, do you get the point? See, when we're obeying God's call, he will empower us to do exactly what he asks us to do. God doesn't call us to see us trip and fall. It's like, hey, Mike, go do this. Hey, watch angels. I'm going to make you watch him try this. He's, he's going to fail. God's not playing games with us. When he calls us to do something, it's for his glory and his purpose. He is going to give us what we need to do what he calls us to do. Sometimes we just have to get out of the way and trust him. God's presence provides for us when we're in need. Consider the Israelites, 40 years in the wilderness. God miraculously provided everything they needed. It guides us when we're lost. Again, God guided the, Moses and the people through the, Israel, uh, um, through the wilderness. Now, we might not get a visible manifestation of God's presence. We might not see a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, but his presence is just as real as it was with Elisha and his servant when the servant couldn't see. Sometimes God works through his word. Sometimes he works through his Holy Spirit. Sometimes he works through other believers in the body. God guides us and empowers us. God's presence can comfort us when we're discouraged. Remember when Jesus was telling his disciples, I'm going to be leaving soon. It was in John chapter 13 and 14. And they were concerned. And he said, I will ask the Father, he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. See, God's presence makes a difference. The third truth tells us why God has promised to be with us. There's a reason for God's promise to be with his people. It's extremely important that we understand it. That's the purpose of his presence. God will be with us to fulfill his plan for us. And see, the power that God shows on our behalf is ultimately for the purpose of fulfilling his eternal plan and bringing glory to himself. He's with us so that we can do his will, carrying out the tasks he created for us to do. In every one of these promises to these men, I will be with you, the purpose was clear. It was so that his plan could be carried out. Now, we need to really remember that because we tend to make everything about us. See, we can't treat God's power and his presence as some sort of genie in a bottle we can call on just at our pleasure. You know, it's, I have a problem, I have an issue, well, I better turn to God. Where do I leave the bottle? You know, rub the bottle, pray. Hey, God, I've got a problem. Can you fix it for me? God fixes it, back in the bottle, put the cork on. Now I go about my life again and I'm in control. That's not what God's presence is about. God's presence is about following him on a day-to-day -day basis as he empowers us to do what he's called us to do. And so we can't presume upon his presence to always make our lives safe, easy, and comfortable. There's no promise that says everything's going to be hunky-dory in this, in this world. We live in a broken, fallen world. God will empower us to do what he needs us to do, but that doesn't mean it's always going to be easy. God doesn't promise to take away every trial. I mean, look, look, look at the disciples. All but John were, were martyred. And they walked with Jesus. What we can count on is for God to empower us to do what he's called us to do, even when it's not comfortable. So, the promise is God is the God who is with us. 
The power is that God will be with us in a way that makes a difference. The purpose is that God will be with us to fulfill his plan. The fourth truth about God's presence is this. There's a prerequisite for his presence. God will be with us when we are with him. God will be with us when we are with him. I could have said condition for his presence, but it doesn't start with P. And in seminary, they tell you everything has to start with P when you do a sermon. So I use prerequisite, so it'll help you remember better, hopefully. Um, they don't always, but you get better, better grades in your preaching class if you do that. Uh, so God is always present everywhere. Let's understand this. God is always present everywhere. Okay, we're not denying that. But his presence in power with us, when he manifests his power in our, in our lives, is when we're doing his will. In other words, I can't presume upon God's presence and God's power to just help me do what I want to do. I can't plot out my life and my will for my life and expect God to come in and make it all happen for me. God will make happen what he's called me to do. 2 Chronicles 15, the prophet Azariah is speaking to King Asa of Judah. Asa had a problem with depending on God. You can read the story. He'd had some issues with depending on the power of allies and other men and never turning to God. Azariah says to him, the Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will let you find him, but if you forsake him, he will forsake you. The Lord is with you when you are with him. Now, it doesn't say we have to be perfect. God doesn't go with our, come and go with our ups and downs. He's always with us in his presence, working in us, for us, and sometimes in spite of us. But we can depend on him and draw strength from him only if I'm seeking his will. If I walk in disobedience, I can't presume on his power. Disobedience is grounds for God not in being with me in power. Back to the Israelites again. Moses and the Israelites. We're in Numbers chapter 13. They're ready to go into the promised land of Canaan. And God's commanded them. He said, send out men to spy out the land of Canaan before you go in. You may know the story. They sent 12 spies, one from each of the 12 tribes. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, came back and said, man, God's land is great. Beautiful place, milk and honey. It's just, it, it, it's, we couldn't imagine anything better. We're ready to go in and enjoy God's promise. But the other 10, they were a little scared. Oh, no, 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 we can't go in there. You should see the people. Man, these people are tall. Their cities are big. The walls are thick. There's just no way we can take them. We, gotta go, we just can't do this. And so Numbers 14 says, all the congregation raised a loud cry and wept that night. The people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt or we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us just to go back to Egypt? Let's choose another leader and go back to Egypt. Well, God responds by telling Moses, Okay, I'm going to destroy them. That's it. They've disobeyed me the last time. I'm going to start a new people with you. Moses intercedes for them. God says, I won't destroy them, but they're not going into the promised land right now. I'm not going to empower them to go in right now. They have to wander the wilderness for 40 years. Well, then, of course, the people say, okay, okay, we'll do it now. We change their mind. We'll go into the promised land tomorrow. Moses warns them. He says, don't do it. God was with you today if you had obeyed him. You disobeyed him. You turned against him. He's not going to be with you when you go into the promised land tomorrow, so don't do it. Well, they did it anyways. You know the story. They get chased out, soundly defeated. We need to remember this because we too often treat God like our personal genie. But the Bible teaches we can't expect God to miraculously solve our problems when we're living according to our will and not his. For example, 
I can't go to God and say, God, solve my financial problems while I'm spending more on my own pleasure and entertainment than on God's kingdom. I can't ask God to fix the problem person in my life when I'm mistreating others and not loving them. It doesn't mean we have to be perfect, but it means we need to be seeking God's will. I can't seek God's power for my will. That's not how it works. God empowers us when when we seek his will. He doesn't empower me to do things on my own. What would the world be like with that? All of us got God's power and got to do our own will. It'd be a mess. We're never alone when we're doing God's will. We are never alone when we're doing God's will. We have been called to an awesome work in God's kingdom. On our own, the tasks before us are impossible to be holy in a sinful world, to reach out and love the unlovable, to make disciples out of sinners. We're powerless to accomplish these things on our own. But when we consider our calling, we need to remember that the issue isn't what I can or can't do. It's who is the God that called me? Who is the God that called us? And remember, here's who he is. He is the God who will be with us, who will be with us in power in a way that makes a real difference in order to carry out his plan as we seek to follow and obey him. The first time I preached the message on this subject was about 25 years ago, and God reminded me of the importance of this truth the evening before I preached it, just 12 hours before. Our, fu- our son, James, who is now five years old, the one who had the seizure I shared with you in the beginning, had another seizure. We called 911 right away. Police came and the paramedics. And while they're taking him into the ambulance, both the paramedics and myself were assuring him, Daddy's with you. I will be with you. That's all he wanted to hear. We got to the emergency room in the hospital over and over. I'm saying, James, I'll be with you. Daddy's here. I'll be with you. They're doing tests on him. You're poking him and doing things like they do in hospitals. And little five-year-old James, I said, Daddy's with you. I'm holding his hand. I'm with you. I had to go use the restroom at one point, and he was upset because I was leaving. I said, I'll be right back to be with you. He wanted his dad there. He needed to know I would be with him. As he went into the ambulance, he needed to know. And strange people picked him up and poked him. He needed to know. He needed to have his father with him. We have our father with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. It's the kind of father he is, the kind of God that he is. So we tend to ask the question when God puts a task before us, who am I? Who are we? That's not what's important. What matters is who he is. And that when we obey him, he will be with us and empower us to do what he's called us to do. Now, we're all familiar with the Great Commission, I think. The last words of Jesus recorded in Matthew, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That's the greatest task of the church. But too often we stop right there in the middle. That's not the whole thing. Jesus continues. His last words are important. He followed that up with this. He continued the sentence this way. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In other words, it wasn't good luck, disciples. Go make, this, go make disciples of all nations. It was, here's the mission I've given to you. But I will be with you always, 
even to the end of the age, as you do my, do my will. So let me ask you this morning, will you consider anew this morning God's call on your life, whatever it is he's put before you, the things he's put before all of us, to be holy in a sinful world, to love the unlovable, to make disciples, whatever it is God has put before you to do, will you consider anew doing it, doing it in his power? Don't look in the mirror this time and say, who am I? I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't think I can do it. Remember who he is. He is the God who is with us. He is the God who is with you. Let's pray. Our Father, it's good to be able to say that. Father, I know you're a God who is with us. It's good to know that wherever we are, you are with us, and that in everything you have called us to do, you have made a way. When it looks like we're surrounded, we're surrounded by you. Even if we can't see it, we know you're there. In everything that you call us to do, you will make a way. You'll make a path. You will empower us. You will be with our mouth if necessary, with our legs, our arms, our feet. Whatever we need, we need you will be there with us. Let us take that to heart, Father, as we go from here to be your people in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.